good to see so many new faces here. I'm sure many of you have probably been watching online, but it's good to come together. Good to see so many people gathered here. I want to start by recalling a couple of modern day prophets. David E. Taylor is one modern day prophet, still alive today. Uh, he runs and, and started the JMM Ministries. He refers to himself, and others refer to him as an apostle. In fact, they don't even call him by his name, he's just apostle. And he claims uh, sincerely to have had thousands of face-to-face -face meetings with Jesus Christ. And if that were true, you would expect to have some very significant prophecies coming from this man. Um, in 2014, he had an important prophecy that he put on the internet. You can still find the video. It's, it's there. And he predicted the Super Bowl victory would be the Denver Broncos over the Seahawks. He was very serious about it. A friend of his had a dream. And this wasn't just about the Super Bowl. This was to prove that his prophetic words were true. And so he predicted that, he prophesied, I should say, he prophesied that the Broncos would beat the Seahawks by three points in Super Bowl 48. Any football fans here? Anyone remember the outcome of Super Bowl 48? The Broncos did not win by three points. They lost. And they didn't lose by three points. They lost by 35 points. That's one of the all-time most lopsided Super Bowl victories in the history of the NFL. Another modern-day prophet, Harold Camping. I believe he passed away in, I think, I think he passed away in 2014 or so. But when I was in college, I used to listen to Harold Camping. Anyone here ever hear Harold Camping? I'd listen to him on the radio. He had open forum. And he was, he was an old, old man. He just, it almost looked like a puppet. He was just so small. And, and uh, he had a big, white jaw. And I would listen to open forum on the radio. People would just call in and ask him questions. And he would answer. And I listened more for entertainment than edification. He was entertaining for sure. But he predicted the date of the rapture. He taught all of his followers that Christ would return to earth and rapture his own on May 21st. 2011. And in fact, they spent millions upon millions of dollars to put billboards all over the country to prophesy just that. Many of his followers sold all that they had, gave it away, were destitute because they wanted to get those billboards out there. They took uh, those graphic wrappings and they put them around RVs and sent them across the country to warn people that Jesus was coming back on May 21st, 2011 at 5.59 p.m. He had it down as a minute. And guess what happened on May 22nd, 2011? At about 7 a.m., all the reporters were knocking on Harold Camping's door. Because the rapture didn't happen. And he had a lot of people that were upset with him. And he was, in fact, quite a broken man over it. But he had told us that the Bible had given him absolute proof of the date and time of Christ's return. And in the aftermath, he confessed that perhaps his, his math was wrong. It wasn't the first time his math was wrong. He had also predicted the return of Christ back in 1978. And for those of you that maybe haven't been following us, we are in the book of Daniel. 
And here's a third prophet that I would like to look at today in the book of Daniel. Daniel lived in the 6th century B.C., 600 years before Christ, 500 years before Christ. And um, so far as we've been making our way to the book of Daniel, uh, we see a couple prophecies that were made and fulfilled. Now the book of Daniel can be reliably dated. We know when the book was written, if we believe the words are true. If you believe the words are true, it's no problem at all. Daniel wrote the book, and we can see historic events dated in the book. Chapter 1, verse 1, the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. Secular sources tell us exactly when that was. We know when that was. In chapter 2, and verse 1, it says, in the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, you can look that up on Wikipedia. We know what year that was as well. Now, modern scholars for quite some time have been saying that the book of Daniel isn't as old as it claims to be, and they have a, admittedly a, a list of reasons why, but that list is growing shorter. But one of the reasons why is they say the predictions were just too accurate. There's no way he could have predicted the things that were going to take place, and so he must have had, it must have been a book written actually maybe 400 years after when it claims to have been written. But we're going to see evidence to the contrary. I mean, either Daniel is a prophet who's to be revealed, uh, revered, or he's a pretender. And we should revile him. But we believe in the Word of God. We believe the testimony of God's Word is true. This is not just myths and fables. This is reality. So when Daniel says he was there and then he penned the book, we believe it. And so far in the book of Daniel, we've seen two prophecies. Chapter 1, we see the prophecy of the end of the Babylonian Empire. Not just the end, but we see the succeeding uh, empires that come after it in order. And all of that has been validated by history. And then we also saw the, uh, the prophecy of uh, Nebuchadnezzar being humbled, living like an animal, walking away from his kingdom. And scholars, many scholars even today will say that never happened. But there is... Evidence of that as well, secular evidence not found in Scripture, which would demonstrate, obviously, if your king goes mad, that's not something you're going to really want to teach in the history books, but there is evidence of Babylonian scripts that demonstrate that there was a time where he walked away from his throne, and there was no progress in the kingdom, and he was isolated for three and a half years, or seven seasons, and the Bible prophesied seven times. So those are the two prophecies that we see fulfilled thus far. And um, this is important to us right now. This is important because it demonstrates that God is building objective credibility in regards to his testimony to you through Daniel. The fact that we see a prophecy made and fulfilled twice now just builds God's credibility. That what he says to you through the book, especially, especially through Daniel, it's credible. It's reliable. In fact, if you look in the Deuteronomic Code, back in the book of Deuteronomy, there was two tests that you could do to determine whether a prophet was from God or not. In Deuteronomy chapter 13, it says, even if the prophet predicts something that is true, he predicts something, he prophesies something, and it comes to pass... That's not enough to determine whether or not he's a prophet. For if that same prophet 
leads you away from God or away from the words that are written in this book, you can be assured it's a false prophet. The second test we find in Deuteronomy chapter 18. I'll read those words for you. I have a part of a ribbon in my Bible. Deuteronomy 18 says in verse 20, But the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name that I have not commanded him to speak, or who speaks in the name of other gods, that same prophet shall die. And if you say in your heart, how may we know the word that the Lord has not spoken? When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the word does not come to pass or come true, that is the word that is not spoken from the Lord. The prophet has spoken presumptuously. You need not be afraid of him. So, according to that standard, our two boys, Apostle Taylor and Harold Camping, are in a little trouble. They were proven to be false prophets. Thus far, Daniel has not been proven to be a false prophet. And this is critical for us today, right here, sitting under this structure by the river, 2020, in Vincennes, Indiana. The fact that his prophecies so far have come true are important to us, partly because not all the prophecies have been yet fulfilled. We see some of the prophecies fulfilled, some are still yet to come. For instance, in, in those first opening chapters where we see the prophecy of all the kingdoms that will come and then be destroyed, and then you have this rock that is uncut from human hands come and just pulverizes the statue. And that's the kingdom of God that will come and fill the whole earth. We still wait for that. We're still forward-looking, waiting for Christ to return. And the fact that the prophecies have been fulfilled up to this point gives us confidence that He will come back. And that prophecy, too, will be fulfilled. So it's important to us right now, it's critical that Daniel be recognized as a legitimate prophet. Because there's more prophecies yet to come. But it's also critical for us to recognize Daniel as speaking a word from the Lord. Because he has a message to speak to you today. If we remember back, we started this series in Hebrews chapter 3. Where it says that everything that took place in the Old Testament was written down. And every, every account that we find in the Old Testament serves either as an example for us to follow or as a warning for us to avoid. And so Daniel lays out even more messages for us and we need to know, we need to recognize his word is true and so we either need to avoid what he's warning us about or follow in his example. Hebrews chapter 3, uh, I'm sorry, that was in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 3, verses 12 and 14 says, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil and unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God, but exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by the desire, uh, by the deceitfulness of sin, for we have come to share in Christ. And so we have this command to constantly be warning one another. Constantly we need to be on guard against the deceitfulness of our hearts. The sin creeping in, infecting us. And so we warn. As long as it is day, we warn each other. And, and so right now I ask you to allow me to exhort you today from the fifth chapter of the book of Daniel. Would you make your way there to the fifth chapter of the book of Daniel? And we're going to read through this account, pretty much we'll, we'll read through this entire account, and I'll just pause briefly from here to there, uh, 
and just kind of give you some context or maybe some examples of what we see here in this passage. And then, and then we'll, when God gives Belshazzar the main message, when Daniel gives Belshazzar the main message, that, that message will be for us as well. So in Daniel chapter 5, verse 1, it says, King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousands. Now, let, let me say this too. By the end of this chapter, we are going to know exactly the month and the year that this took place. And we're going to know it from accounts that are in the history books. You, again, you can look it up on Wikipedia. We know that this took place in October 539 B.C. And this is one of the things, this is one of the characters in the book that the modern day scholars for many, many years said is evidence that the book is a fraud. Because in all of our studies, we have never uncovered anywhere in the history of Babylon a king named Belshazzar. Perhaps Daniel was confused. After all, he was writing this 400 years after the fact, right? Before he's an unbelieving scholar. Perhaps he was confusing the names with somebody else. But in 1854... Inscriptions were excavated from the land of Ur, and they discovered this thing called the Nabonidus Cylinders. And in it, you see the king uh, Nabonidus, and he, through some sort of imbroglio, was, he didn't come directly after Nebuchadnezzar, but he was a few kings down. There was some turmoil there. But in this inscription, he says a prayer for his son. Can you guess what the name of his son is? Belshazzar. And so we now have evidence that there was a person in Babylon named Belshazzar. In 1882, another document was unearthed. It was uh, the Nabonidus uh, Chronicles, I believe. And it demonstrated that Nabonidus, though he was king, was an absent king for most of his reign. Ten of his 17 years, he spent over 450 miles away from his kingdom. And who did he leave in charge? His son. Belshazzar. I think that's interesting. That the word of God was proven true, though it stood silent before its accusers for thousands of years, finally the proper credentials were unearthed, and God's scholars were proven right, and the worldly scholars were proven wrong. But we see evidence here, now historical evidence, that there was a king named Belshazzar. He was acting as king, even though his father was the king. We're going to see a clue to that coming up later as well. Look at verse 2. Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, or his forefather, he, he of course would want to claim more direct lineage to Nebuchadnezzar because he was the last great king, really the most reputable, the last reputable king of Babylon. But anyway, it says that he grabbed the vessels of gold and silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem. To be brought, that the king and his lords, his wives, his concubines might drink from them. And remember, this is the sanctified holy vessels that were used in the temple to worship the living God. And he brought them in for an orgy and for a party, for drinking. Verse 3, then they brought in the gold vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem. And the king and his lords and his wives and his concubines drank from them. They drank wine and they praised the gods of gold and silver, the gods of bronze and iron and wood and stone. 
And so what we see here is that they took that which was dedicated to Yahweh, that which was sanctified, that which was set apart, that which was reserved for worshiping the only true deity, and they treated those vessels as if they were common, and they even used those vessels to worship the gods of, look at the list there, the gods of gold and silver and bronze and wood and stone. So they were, they were worshiping the gods of, of wealth and stone and wood, the gods of function. They needed these things to be successful in their everyday life. And so they worshiped wealth and they worshiped function. There's a lot of people, even in God's church today, that are worshiping the gods of wealth and, and function. This did not sit well with the Lord. In verse 5 it says, Immediately the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand. And the king saw the hand as it wrote. When my kids were little, I would always tell them bedtime stories. And my wife would get upset because I had a reoccurring story of the disembodied hand. And the kids were always afraid of the disembodied hand. And here we see an actual disembodied hand writing a message on the wall of the palace. And we've seen enough stories told in movies. And, and, and this doesn't shock us too much because of the special effects that we've become acclimated to. But what if you were laying in your bed at night and you saw a disembodied hand writing a message on the wall? Dear Andy, wake up. We would be a little more terrified. This had never been seen before. It never been heard of before. Verse 6 demonstrates how shocking this was. Then the king's color changed. The blood probably dropped from his face. He became ashen. The king's color changed. His thoughts alarmed him. He had alarm bells going off in his brain. It says his limbs gave way and his knees knocked together. His knees were knocking together and his limbs gave way. It, it actually... It, it, some translations say his hips gave way. It's really, literally, is his knots were loosened. And some scholars believe this is just a, a polite way of saying that he soiled himself. So he was quite terrified. Marked by four characteristics there. His knees were weak, his face was ashen, his mind was alarmed, and there was a growing puddle underneath his throat. Verse 7. The king called loudly to bring in the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers. Um, the king declared to the wise men of Babylon, Whoever reads this writing and shows me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around his neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or make known the king the interpretation. The king Belshazzar was greatly alarmed and his color changed and his lords were perplexed. The queen, this is probably a, an older woman, probably his mother, a venerated woman, she came to speak wisdom to him. The queen, because of the words of the king and his lords, came into the banquet hall and the queen declared, O king, live forever. She said, let not your thoughts alarm you. Or your color change. She mentioned two of the clearly distinct attributes that she saw change before the king. 
She said, don't let your thoughts alarm you. Don't let your color change. There is a man in the kingdom who's in whom is the spirit of the holy gods or the holy God. And in the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods, were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, he made him chief of the magicians and the enchanters and the Chaldeans and the astrologers because an excellent spirit of knowledge and understanding to interpret dreams and explain riddles and solve problems were found in this Daniel whom the king named Belteshazzar. Now let Daniel be called and he will show the interpretation. Now I want you to note also there's a little bit of wordplay here. I don't know if... Daniel inserted the wordplay, or if the queen was giving this wordplay. But remember, she said, remember there's four characteristics that describe the, uh, the turmoil that the king was in. His face was ashen, and she says, don't let it, uh, your color change. It says his mind was alarmed, and she said, don't let your thoughts alarm you. Remember, his knees were weak, and probably his bowels were loosed as well, which literally, it's figuratively, it's saying his knots were untied. And she says to him, there's this Daniel, and he knows how to untie knots. And so there's kind of reference to, you've humiliated yourself here, but there's someone that can really take care of the situation. You need to call in Daniel. And so Daniel comes in verse 13. He comes before the king, and the king tells him the deal. And um, he says down in, in, in verse 16, if you can read the writing and make known to me its interpretation... You shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around your neck, and you shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Why not offer this the second position? Why not be the second ruler in the kingdom? Because he was the second ruler in the kingdom. His father was the real ruler, and his father was away for the last ten years. So he offered him the highest position that was available to him. Verse 17. Then Daniel answered and said before the king, Let your gifts be for yourself, and let your rewards be to another. Nevertheless, I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. O king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar, your father, kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. And because of the greatness that he gave him, all peoples, nations, and languages trembled and feared before Nebuchadnezzar. Whom he would, he killed, and whom he would, he kept alive. Whom he would, he raised up, and whom he would, he humbled. But when his heart was lifted and his spirit was hardened, so that he dealt proudly, he was brought down from his kingly throne and his glory was taken from him. He was driven from among the children of mankind and his mind was made like that of a beast and his dwelling was with the wild donkeys. He was fed grass like an ox and his body was wet with the dew of heaven until he knew the Most High God rules and the kingdom of mankind sets over it whom he will. And you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled yourself, your heart, though you knew all this, but you have lifted yourself up against the Lord of heaven. And so he's saying, you need to take heed from your forefathers. And ladies and gentlemen, I'd say to you too, we need to take heed from our spiritual forefathers as well. We need to be alarmed and remember what happened when people exalted themselves against God, when there was pride in their own little kingdom and what they had accomplished and the, and the prestige that they had acquired, God takes that into account. And Daniel brings this to his attention. He says, again, 
You brought in the vessels of, and you praised the gods of silver and gold and bronze and iron and wood and stone, which do not see or hear or know. But the God in whose hand your breath and whose are all your ways, you have not honored him. He brings again the fact that they were worshiping the gods of wealth and function, the gods of luxury, the gods of ease. And they were blaspheming the God of the universe to do it. Therefore, in verse 24, from his presence the hand was sent. The disembodied hand came from the presence of God, and the writing was inscribed on the wall. And this is the writing that was inscribed, verse 25. Many, many, tekel and parson, four words, two of them used twice, one of them used twice. Many, many, tekel, parson. He said, this is the interpretation of the manner. Many, many means... Now, these, the reason why the guys couldn't figure this out is, I think, we know these sound similar to other words in Aramaic. Aramaic is one of the oldest languages on the planet. And I believe what we have here is a code uh, in Aramaic homophones. Do you know what a homophone is, kids? You guys are homeschooled. You guys should be pretty bright. You know what a homophone is? A homophone is a word that has two different spellings and two different meanings. But they sound the same. So, how do you spell uh, tail? U. T I T A. I'm sorry, I did it wrong. T A I L. Is that correct? Yes or no? That is correct. But there's another way you can spell tail, isn't there? T A L E. One is the thing that wags on the back of a dog, and the other is a story that is told. That's a homophone. And these were Aramaic homophones. And so you have the words that Daniel discerned. Mene, mene, it's twice. That word means number, number. And here we're getting to the heart of chapter 5, and the heart of the sermon, and the heart of the matters at hand for us. Mene, mene means number, number. Verse 27. Teko means, oh I'm sorry, let me read verse 26. The interpretation of the matter is this. Many, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, tekel means weighed. He says, Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Paris, Paris means divided. Your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and to the Persians. Then Belshazzar gave the command, and Daniel was clothed with purple, and a chain of gold was put around his neck. And a proclamation was made about him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. But verse 30, that very night, Belshazzar the Chaldean king was killed. And Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. So now we have a third prophecy that is fulfilled before our eyes, historically confirmed. And God's credibility once again is underscored. And so this message is important to us, not just proving these prophecies came true, but that the heart behind the prophecy is true, and it's sure. And this is critical, because the message wasn't just for Belshazzar. It was recorded for you to read and hear this day. The lesson wasn't uniquely for one man. This was is exactly how God deals with all mankind. Measure, weigh, found wanting. There's not a man, woman, or child that this wouldn't also describe. The finger wasn't just writing on the plaster wall 
of a Babylonian palace. The finger of God writes even now on the wall of your heart. If you will listen, if you will heed. So let's think about an application of this. This prophecy of Daniel. Let's kind of unriddle this riddle. Daniel addresses the question that echoes with every beat of your heart. Your soul, listen to me, your soul is primed to hear this message. God has preserved it throughout time so you can hear it and see the heart of God towards mankind. In three parts, your days are counted, your deeds are measured. And your destiny is determined. First of all, your days are counted. We see this not only in, in, in that prophecy in verse 26, but just look back even uh, to verse 23, where he says, uh, The God in whose hand is your breath. God holds your breath in his hand. And, and to him belong all your ways. We know in Psalm 139, verse 16, says, Your eyes saw my unformed substance. And in your book were written every one of the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. Your days are numbered. God knows the day of your birth, the day of your death. Just last week we had a, 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 a prominent person in our community suddenly killed in a plane crash. He was healthy as a horse, productive. And just like that, to the shock of all of us, he was gone. But not to the shock of God. Your days are numbered. He knows how long, how long a life you're going to have. And even if you don't buy into that, you can buy into the New Testament teaching that's repeated again and again and throughout the Old Testament, that man's days are like the grass. Look around and see the grass. Not all of it is green. Some of it's yellow. Some of it's brown. And by this winter, all of it will be brown. And God says, your days are like the grass in the field. Here today, gone tomorrow. Your days are limited. They're measured. And because of that, there's some urgency in how we respond to this message. Your days are counted. Your deeds are measured. I thought you said that God is not going to measure us according to our deeds. That's what I was taught in Sunday school, right? You're not going to be judged by your deeds. Revelation chapter 20, verse 12. Some people will be, not all, but some people will be judged by their deeds. Those who are a part of the second resurrection, not the first one. The first resurrection is the blessed resurrection. The second resurrection is to the great white throne judgment. And it says that the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. They were judged. They were weighed out by according to what they had done. I have behind me here... And one of those old scales. This is kind of what would have come to, uh, the key, to all the listeners' ears when Daniel proclaimed this. He said, you have been weighed. You've been found wanting. With what is God going to weigh a person's life against? What could he weigh it against? Let's say he would weigh it against his own character. Let this bucket represent that character of God. In this bucket are the weighty examples of the glory of God. The weight of God's glory. Each, each stone represents some other characteristic about God. We have 
His holiness. We have His patience. We have the goodness of God, the patience of God, the generosity of God, all of these beauties, the righteousness of God, the perfection of God. And, and ladies and gentlemen, it's a heavy weight. Glory is a heavy thing. And God puts that on one end of the scale. And then on the other end of the scale, we have our life. And first, I hope you notice that the capacity of your life falls far short of the capacity. Let alone the actual righteousness that you might have in your life. The capacity for righteousness is far short of God's capacity for righteousness. He's been around a long time. Eternity is a long time. And so this would represent our lives if we would put this on the other end of the scale. And what could we put in our end to try to match the weight of God's glory? Well, good deeds. Nice things that we could do. And the good deeds and the nice things could be represented not by a measure of sand, but by a grain of sand. Just a grain of sand. One at a time. Dropped into your vessel. What hope do you have to ever compete with the weight of God's glory? And not only that, your condition is much worse than you thought. Because every time you sin, that's not just one grain of sand being plucked out of the container. Rather, it's an ever-growing hole that's punched in the bottom of the container. You have no hope, no matter, even if from this point on, you determine that you're going to be righteous from now on. Never another thing wrong. Only good deeds from me. For the rest of your life, till you live to a ripe old age of 110, and then you die, you still have no hope. Because the sin was permanent. And you will be measured, and you will fall short. What hope do we have? The only thing we can hope for is if ever there was a man or woman who lived whose weight of glory would match that of God's. And of course, we know exactly who that was. It was the man Jesus Christ. And I bring this as an example to help us see that Christ's containers had every bit of the weight of glory that God the Father's container had. Every stone that was in the Father's container is in the Son's container. There's nothing in the Son's container that wasn't also in the Father's container. So when this man is weighed against the glory of God, he's not found wanting at all. So what do we do? Our hope is not to fill our container as full as we can. Our hope is to come to Christ broken and empty and just be found in Him. I'm just going to tuck myself into Christ's account. I'm going to come to Him and ask if I can be included in His container. And then I won't be found wanting. Because the way of Christ's glory, I'm nestled in it. I'm found inside of it. This is the imagery that Daniel portrayed when he said, Your days are counted, your deeds are measured, and you've been found wanting, so therefore your destiny is determined. Ladies and gentlemen, your destiny has not yet been determined. You have either a destiny of doom or a destiny of delight. Depending, and this is where the application in our sermon takes two different roads, whether you are in Christ 
for whether you are outside of Christ. And if you're in Christ, let me just challenge you with this. First of all, if you are in Christ, don't live as if you are outside of Christ. If you are found in Christ, don't continue as if you're outside of Christ. Don't be one of these people that say, when it comes to the day of judgment, I definitely want to be found in Christ. But when it comes to tomorrow and every day between now and that day of judgment, I want to live my life for me. It doesn't work that way. When, when the flood came and, and Noah's ark was full, there was probably a few people that said, Noah, I'd like to be in the ark when the flood comes, but right now I'm going to be out here enjoying life. The door was sealed. You can't live in Christ but behave as if you're outside of Christ. Another application for those of you that are in Christ would be don't try to build up your old resume. Some of us still behave. They say, I know, I know that I have the righteousness of Christ, but I just can't help it. I've got to try to build up this resume as best as I can. Abandon that thought. You have no righteousness in and of yourself. What is that? Psalm, um, Psalm 16.2. I have no good apart from you. You've got a broken and empty vessel. You can't do it. You need to recognize all the righteousness you have is in Christ. I'm not going to enjoy any time outside of Christ. I'm not going to live contrary to my salvation and my redemption. Now, for those of you here, and I don't know everyone here, there may be someone here that has never made that decision, never made that confession, never come to Christ and said, I want to be counted with you. I know I'm empty, I know I'm broken, and now, Lord, I need to be found in you. Maybe you've never done that. And for you, the application is this. It's time to get in. It's time to get in. We're going to have our worship team come forward. We're going to sing a song called, Oh, Come to the Altar. And maybe there's someone here that has never done that. Their heart has never come to the altar. Altar, you come and you lay down something and sacrifice to the Lord. In contemporary terms, the altar is where you come and you make a decision for the Lord. And you come to the altar. And maybe you need to come to the altar and say, I've never confessed my sins. I've never come to Jesus broken and empty, but now I do. If that is you, today is your day. The day of salvation is today. You need to come to Him. Or perhaps there's no need to come up here. Perhaps you need to just put your hand on the shoulder of someone that you came with. Just turn around and walk right down to that beautiful river down there. Do business with God down there. I wonder if, uh, Harry, would you stand up please? Harry's one of our elders. And Dan Samberg, stand up. I don't think Larry's out here. We got two elders right there. Maybe you just need to go up to them and say, "Can you come and pray with me?" And you'll find, and they'll walk up, and you'll find a spot where you can quietly do business with God. But listen, your destiny is at stake here. Your eternal future hangs in the balance of what you do with Christ. You're either in or you're out. So I want to invite everyone to stand, and we're going to sing this song. And this is an opportunity for you to wait. Maybe you're in Christ, but you've been living like you're out. Maybe you're in Christ, but you've been building that old man resume just in case it gets judged. Or maybe because others around you are judging your old ways. It's time to do business with God. Maybe you've never come to God. It's now the day. Today is the day. Come to Him broken and empty, and you will be made full. Listen.